Spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's absolutely doubtless that you will have been through these things before. I think we might have said this last time we were together. But these, these scriptures, these truths that the Lord Jesus taught as he sat on, the, on that mount or that hill. I had the privilege of being there actually. We were in Israel and we went to the mount where this was preached. And you know, it's, as you read these things, you can kind of look back and you can identify a place with a, with a message. So it is helpful. But there are so many things to learn that I look at these things, and I'm sure you do the same, and I look at the infinite treasures that are well beyond me. And I ask the Lord to help me to understand what it is that he's saying. For we all need that help by the Spirit. He unfolds the Word. It says that in Psalm 139, I think it is. No, not 139, 119. He unfolds the Word. So we are on this first tenet of the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus had come out, excuse me, <clears throat> from being tempted in the wilderness. And his message was when he began preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was reiterating and empowering the message already begun to be preached by John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way for his coming. The same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The people were waiting for their Messiah. The Jewish people were waiting for their Messiah. One that was promised long ago. One actually that was foretold even directly after the fall of Adam and Eve. At this point in time, Judea had been under Roman rule for many years. And according to enterthebible.org, the Romans conquered Jerusalem in 63 BCE. This brought the region under Roman control, though they used local leaders to govern. So they used leaders from within to govern. The most famous was a ruthless military commander named Herod the Great. Herod transformed the country. He built the port of Caesarea on the coast and a temple to Augustus in Samaria. He remodelled the Jerusalem temple and next to it built the Antonia Fortress, a Roman military installation. You can imagine that, can't you, on your doorstep? A Roman military installation, an installation of what you would term of the enemy. You can just imagine how that went down. After Herod's death in 4 BCE, his son Herod Antipas ruled Galilee in the north. He is the Herod mentioned in the accounts of Jesus' ministry. Another son ruled the south until 6 BCE, when the Romans began sending their own governors to Judea. Pontius Pilate was one of these. The Romans used local agents to collect taxes. The agents made a profit by adding their own fees, which made most people resent them. So when we speak of the tax collectors, such as Zacchaeus, even uh, Matthew, who wrote this very uh, gospel, he was a tax collector. 
And at the time, he was hated because they basically ripped off their own people. You can understand just how much people resented them. Then from theologycurator.com, we also note this, that the demand for tribute to Roman taxes to Herod, in addition to the tithes and offerings to the temple and priesthood, dramatically escalated the economic pressures on peasant producers, whose livelihood was perennially marginal at best. After decades of multiple demands from multiple layers of rulers, many villages fell increasingly into debt and were faced with the loss of their family inheritance of land. The impoverishment of families led to the disintegration of village communities. The fundamental social form of such an agrarian society. These are precisely the deteriorating conditions that Jesus addresses in the Gospels. Impoverishment, hunger and debt. So amidst this tyrannical rule and oppression of the Romans, we've had a very brief picture there. We haven't lived in it. We've not seen it, we don't understand what it was like, but we get a little picture there. So amongst this kind of tyrannical rule and oppression, it's not hard then to understand when Jesus, speaking of another kingdom, along with power and authority, and in his speech, and it was attested to by the very signs and wonders they expected their coming Messiah to perform, that the people had great hope. The people that was in this situation at this time had great hope. They hoped that he'd come as a great messianic military leader to raise an army to conquer the Romans and release them once and from all and from all from their grip. But Jesus' message confused them. Instead of war, preaching about raising an army, he spoke about peace. Instead of rebelling and condoning the rebellion against authority, he urged people to pray for them. Instead of hating their enemies, he taught them to love them. With all this confusion, with so many questions. When the multitude saw his great works and followed him, he took the opportunity to teach them about the very kingdom that he preached. Just like we said this morning about John the Baptist, he wanted to teach them a better way. He wanted to teach them the right way. Love your enemies. It's one of the hardest things to do. These people were angry. They hated the Romans and they just wanted to get out of it and go and raise up a leader and defeat them. Remember when the guards came to take Jesus, Simon drew the sword, didn't he? What did he do? He cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, Malchus. And Jesus told him to put his sword away. He says, all who live by the sword will die by the sword. And even then, he healed the man. And they still couldn't see who he was. But here we have these 
fantastic principles set out for us as Jesus sat aside on the mount to teach his disciples. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed. We kind of looked at this already, didn't we, when we looked at Psalm 1. That every one of these nine tenets of the Beatitudes begins with the word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We've seen what it is to be blessed in our other studies. It means to be truly happy. Really, really happy. It is to be seen as very fortunate. If you're blessed, then you're a fortunate person. Even to be in a position that is enviable from those onlookers. They look at your life and they say, this person is blessed. I wish I were that blessed. I wish I had what they had. It's enviable. They are to be well off. And here, it actually depicts someone who receives divine favour. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's saying, blessed with divine favour are you who are poor in spirit. You have divine favour. You are truly happy. You are enviable. You are very fortunate if you are poor in spirit. But when we think of the connections or the concept of being blessed, when even starting the conversation with the word, we no doubt will expect more obvious good things to be said, such as, you know, blessed are the healthy. Blessed are they who have no disease. Blessed are those who have enough money to pay their bills and live comfortably. Blessed are those who everyone loves and respects. Blessed are those who have great success in every area of their lives. See, that's kind of a human way to look at being blessed. You might hear of somebody who's just won the Euro Millions Lottery. A hundred million pounds. And you might think, wow, they're blessed. But are they really? See, that's a human way of looking at things. We might look upon all these types of things and say that they're blessed people. But Jesus began to teach them profound things. Things that perhaps we may look at and see two opposite scales. Why is it blessed to be poor in spirit? Blessed are those who mourn. Am I enviable? Am I truly happy? Do people look at me in my mourning and wish they were me? What does it mean to mourn? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, when Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate asked Jesus if he was indeed the king of the Jews. Jesus replied, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight 
so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. That must have just torn down the hopes of countless people who hoped that he was going to be king. They tried to take him and make him king in John chapter 6 after he fed the 5,000 people. To take him by force because they thought this was the guy. But here he's saying, my kingdom is not of this world. What does that mean? Now my kingdom is not from here. This is not a temporal kingdom. It's not an earthly one. But he speaks of a kingdom that is eternal. And in his kingdom, in this eternal, unworldly kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit. Most of us, if not all of us, will have seen many news stories showing countries who are in extreme famine. I remember many years ago seeing those kind of short documentaries that flash upon the news or maybe some kind of, I don't know, Red Nose Day thing or something, where they show you these videos of places like Somalia. They've actually been in the news again recently. You might have seen. Seems like famine might be hitting them again. But these places like Somalia, they, they show you these, these, uh, these children and these adults who are... Uh, they've got desperation on their faces and you can see that the ribs in their bodies their starvation has took a hold of them you see some of them if you remember with the big pot bellies which is a form actually of showing how they are beginning to starve <clears throat> be it even closer to home when we walk through our towns Maybe particularly the cities where the homeless people sit, where they sleep, where they beg on a daily basis. And in the current economic crisis with the cost of living. There are more people using food bank services than ever. There are people here that probably know that more than us. But with these things in the forefront of our minds... When we think of what it is to be poor, we may find it almost hard to believe when in Luke's record of the Beatitudes, Jesus simply states, Blessed are you, poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. How can the poor be blessed? All those things and examples we've just mentioned, how can they be blessed? How could those who are in straitened circumstances, those beggars, how can they be blessed? But what we have to understand when we read such things as these Beatitudes is to understand the context, to understand the meaning of what he's talking about. The Lord, of course, isn't meaning here all those who have little money or no money. He's not speaking Directly of those that are starving or even those that are homeless. There are those amongst the children of God who live on meagre rations. And there are, of course, all those 
who have plenty. Said again, this morning we find ourselves in different circumstances. The Lord has given it our lot to some of us to manage day by day. Other people in the Christian community, he has given an abundance so that they don't necessarily have to think about the same things as those other people. <coughs> the household of God is made up of people in every manner of circumstances. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us we are all like an unclean thing and our righteousness are like filthy rags. See, the truth is that all mankind are spiritually poor. Every one of us. That's the truth of the matter. Every one of us is spiritually poor. As John Gill says, they have nothing to eat that is fit and proper, nor any clothes to wear but rags, nor are they able to purchase either. They have no money to buy with. They are in debt. They owe 10,000 talents and have nothing to pay. And in such a condition that they are not able to help themselves. That's what it is to be spiritually poor. We can mirror it with the physically poor. But spiritually we are in rags. We have no money. We owe a great debt. We've no way of paying and we're in, as Gil says, in such a condition that we just simply can do nothing to help ourselves. That the problem in our generation, and in fact every generation, because Jesus speaks of it here, 2,000 odd years ago, the vast majority of the world are blind to this. And they think that they're rich. These are beggars in the worst sense, clinging to that which is temporal, whilst completely neglecting the greatest need that they have, which is their poverty in spirit. These are those, by God's grace and mercy, come to recognise their spiritual poorness. That's what he speaks of when he says the poor in spirit. These are those that come to recognise it, to see it. They come to see their poorness of spirit. Not those who don't see it, not those who think we're just living up life, living it rich, and are blind to the fact actually, like he said to the, the Laodiceans in Revelation, they're blind, you think you're rich, but you're poor, and you're dead. See, these are those who Jesus calls blessed, those that see it, those that recognise their poorness of spirit. The poor in spirit are those who know their need of God in every area of their lives. See, they see, the poor in spirit see that they are being weighed, that they be measured. And in God's scales of righteousness have been found wanting. 
Now they see their sin. And they hear the words of Jesus say, without me, you can do nothing. We said that this morning, didn't we? Without me, you can do nothing. Do we really, truly recognise that in our lives? You are without hope without Jesus Christ. You've got nothing. You may have everything this world has to offer. And yet you can be so poor. Poor, beggarly, hungry, starving in fact, for the truth of the Lord. <coughs> Without me, you can do nothing. Isaiah 6 verse 5 says, this is when Isaiah saw the Lord in a vision. He said, woe is me. As soon as he saw him, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. He was able to give a description of what the vision was. And what did he say? What was his reaction? Woe is me. When we see the Lord, we see ourselves in a pure mirror. And we cry inside, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I see him in my own body, in my own heart, in my own mind, in my own soul and spirit. And I cry out inside, woe is me. Because I see just what I am before a thrice holy God. When we look at Simon Peter, you remember in Luke chapter 5, it was a situation where he had gone fishing and he's thrown his nets out, he's toiled all night and he's caught nothing. He says this, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. He told him, of course, to cast it onto the other side. And Peter, being a fisherman, thinks, why is a carpenter giving me advice about fishing? But he says, according to your word. He had respect for him, you see. He looked and something was happening in Peter. He saw something about this man that was different. Not as the scribes, the one who spoke with authority. And he said, cast your net on the other side. So he let it down. When they had done this, they had caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signalled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's the same reaction, isn't it? Who was the Lord high and lifted up whose train filled the temple? Who was it? Jesus Christ. And Peter saw the same thing. And he bowed his knee to the carpenter from Nazareth and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He saw his poverty of spirit before the Lord. Luke 18, 
verse 9 says also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. The tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down from his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. The question then is, isn't it? Who was really the poor man here? wasn't the tax collector oh he was but he saw it he knew what he was I can't even look up to you how many times do you feel that way oh, Lord I'm so unworthy I don't even know if I can come to you but I come to you a sinner I come to you in desperate need I come to you in dirty rags and I need you to clothe me in your righteousness this is how this man came. Not like the attitude of the other man who thought he was righteous in his own actions, his own deeds, his own tithings. <coughs> no. This man, who was poor in spirit, who knew his need of God, was the one who went away justified. That's what it is, to be poor in spirit. Do you know that you need God? Do you know how much you need Him? Do you look inwardly at yourself and grieve at your lack of righteousness? Do you look and wonder at the littleness of the holiness of your life? Do you look at other holy people and say, Lord, why am I not like them? You look at your sin and say, Lord, why does this entangle me so often? Why do I grieve you so? That's what it is to be poor in spirit. And Jesus says, if you're like that, you're extremely blessed. But he says this, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, didn't he, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. If you are a person and put yourself on a pedestal like this Pharisee, think yourself righteous, religious, think yourself above others, be careful lest you fall what Paul says to the Corinthians be careful lest you fall for everybody who exalts themselves they could have been knocked down but all those who humble themselves and know 
Lord God, I need you. With every fibre of my being, I need you. And I'm unworthy. And I'm going to sin again and again. And I wish that I wouldn't. And I wish I could stop. And I wish I could be better. But I know that I need you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Have you a broken heart this evening? You have a contrite spirit within. Are you on your knees, spiritually speaking? And, of course, actually, physically speaking, maybe at times. Before a holy God, and yet a merciful God, and a loving God. Psalm 51, David's great psalm of repentance after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And in Isaiah again, chapter 57, 15. For thus says the high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy places with him who has a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Be blessed. This is why it seems, you see, to be contrary to human nature. How can a poor person who is even poor in spirit be blessed? Be blessed because he says here that he will revive your heart. That he's close to you. That he is yours. That he will raise up the spirit of the humble. Let me just give you two quotes to finish. Paul Kretzmann says this. The reference of Jesus here is not primarily to temporal poverty, to earthly misery, as in other passages of the New Testament. He is speaking of the poor and miserable in spirit. Those that shrink and cower with fear and dread, that are trembling alive to the wants and needs of their soul, that feel in their own hearts, so far as spiritual riches are concerned, nothing but a great void, a despair of their own abilities. Such as these, who are conscious, painfully aware of their moral deficiencies, the Lord calls blessed. He calls them happy. If they were still under the mistaken impression that they were spiritually rich and wanted nothing, they might deceive themselves into a false security which would prevent their gaining the true riches, the only abiding happiness. But as conditions are, no false pride will keep them from accepting the unsearchable riches of the kingdom of heaven, which are theirs by grace. For the kingdom of heaven is the sum total of all the gifts of God in Christ Jesus as they are enjoyed here on earth 
in the Christian church, and finally, above, in the kingdom of glory. This being true, and the riches of the kingdom being even now in their possession, the, the disciples should strive all the more diligently to cultivate the poverty which the Lord here praises, and to exercise themselves in it daily. And lastly, Matthew Henry. There is a poor spiritedness that is so far, far from making men blessed that it is a sin and a snare, cowardice and base fear, and a willing subjection to the lusts of men. But this poverty of spirit is a gracious disposition of soul by which we are emptied of self in order to our being filled with Jesus Christ. The Bible is full of scripture that tells us to die to self so that we might live to Christ. He must increase, I decrease. The question, friends, is this evening, which one are we? Where do we find ourselves? Are we like the Pharisee who thinks they're okay? And I do this, and I do that, and I... Maybe we can look at ourselves or what we do at church. Well, I do this, I'm involved in that. I'm fine. Surely I'm fine. Or do we look at ourselves and see our great lack? Or we see we're miles off from the holiness of God. From being anywhere near his beauty. From looking at ourselves and seeing just a pile of unrighteousness. Not unto condemnation, but unto conviction, knowing our great need of God. For if you are that person, if you know that you need God more than you need your next breath, that you know you need His holiness, that you know you need His righteousness, that you know that you need His cleansing blood to wash away your sin now, past, and in the future. If you know, and you desperately need Him, and you know it, then He says you are blessed. And he says this, that yours is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this great set of principles. The Beatitudes in which the Lord Jesus Christ sat to teach those who were willing to listen. We thank you for this very first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lord, I ask that you might help us then to be of this spirit, Lord, that we might know just how much we need you. Just how much we lack in ourselves, that we might be like that tax collector at times where we so recognise our deficiencies that we cry out, Oh, what a sinner I am. The Lord, it was him that went away justified. He was forgiven. His slate was washed clean. He stood before you in Christ's righteousness. 
because he trusted in Christ's work. Lord, help us to be poor in spirit. And if there is anyone amongst us here tonight who has an arrogance of spirit, who is blind to the truth of their need of God, then I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes to see that they are indeed so poor in spirit. Would you bless them then? Would you bless them to that end? Would you cause them to be enviable? Would you cause them to be favourable? Would you cause them to be truly blessed, to be truly happy knowing that they need you and they put their trust in you and that they know that because of that, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Help us, we pray, Lord God, to live these principles as we just read by your servants, that we might live every day putting these things in place and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ ever for our salvation. Lord, we thank you once again and we ask you to continue to open up our hearts and minds to the wonders and the riches of your word. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.